When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Looking back on the last three years of Sounds Good, one of the central themes of this show has essentially accidentally become dealing with the process of learning to grieve and to feel pain and experience the heartbreak of the world and somehow still make a difference in the world and maybe even use that heartbreak and that pain as a catalyst to do good in the world. One of our earliest episodes, an episode with Tyson Matzenbacher as the guest, dove into this in a really profound way that I think affected me differently than any of our episodes up until that point because I grew up in a small town with Tyson Matzenbacher. We grew up in Pullman, Washington. His dad was the middle school vice principal and Tyson's mom was... Uh, beloved by the community. She was a counselor and she was an author. Now today, Tyson Matzenbacher is a really talented and growing in recognition songwriter and guitarist. He lives in San Diego, California. Uh, He's signed to Tooth & Nail Records, which is a pretty rad record label. Uh, And he's currently on tour with Switchfoot and Colony House. But growing up, Tyson was uh, a lifeguard. Uh, <laughs> I just remember going to the pool and Tyson was a few years older than me. And all the girls in my grade were like, oh, that's Tyson Matzenbacher. He's cool. He's hot. You know, whatever it was. And so I just remember growing up thinking he was uh, always cool. I guess he still is cool. But because I grew up kind of admiring Tyson and uh, knowing his dad, because his dad was a vice principal and knowing you know, who his mom was in the community. Tyson's story impacted me in a pretty huge way. In 2013, after a few years of battling ovarian cancer, Tyson's mom and his personal hero passed away. And in the aftermath of his mom's death, as a kind of a part of the grieving process, Tyson walked the 600-mile stretch of coastline to San Francisco in memory of her. And he says that, In the contrast of loud cars on a dirty highway with the serene beauty of the Pacific Ocean, he contracted a new view for his life beyond loss, a renegotiated relationship with God, and a sense of peace inside the turmoil. This walk then actually went on to become the basis for his debut full-length record. And uh, that record came out in, I think, 2016. And we recorded this episode just shortly after it came out. And I love this conversation. I love getting to reconnect with Tyson in this way. I have his album in my record player right now. Um, I just was streaming just kind of on accident. Some of his newer music on Spotify last week. But also I just, I deeply admire Tyson's ability to kind of dive deep on such a heartbreaking topic and uh, to share a sense of hope and how he 
responded in the midst of this. And so I'm really excited to get to share this episode. If you're new here, I am Brandon Harvey, and this is Sounds Good. This is the weekly podcast where we have conversations with inspiring people who are rejecting cynicism and using their lives to make an impact. Sounds Good is not your typical three steps to success podcast. We don't host this podcast for the sake of leaving you with bullet points on self-improvement. We just believe that our lives are more complex than that. And so we show up here on Sounds Good to ask big questions, dive into nuance, and learn from each other's stories. Like we said last week, we're currently on a break for a few weeks while we work on some new episodes we're really excited about. But in the meantime, we're airing some of our old favorite episodes from the last three years. And so without any further ado, let's jump straight into our conversation with Tyson Matzenbacher. All right, everybody, I am here in the studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Tyson Matzenbacher just flew in on an airplane. Tyson, welcome to Nashville. Thanks for having me, man. Dude, this is so fun. It is fun. I agree. So get this. Tyson and I actually went to high school together. Sort of. Sort of. We we went to the same high school at yep. different times. Yes. And so we were reminiscing just now about like all of our old experiences back in our hometown of Pullman. I remember that you were fantastic at Ultimate Frisbee. Mm. Are you still fantastic at Ultimate Frisbee? I am okay at Ultimate Frisbee. Okay. That's I like good. I play I like to play Frisbee golf now. That's good. That's kind of the the old guy version of That's right. Ultimate Frisbee. It's the aging Ultimate Frisbee guy. Yeah. Plays Frisbee golf just like how the aging normal guy plays normal golf. Exactly. Okay, okay, get this. This is this is the memory that I I remembered yesterday. You used to be a lifeguard at the Rainy Park Pool. Yes, I did. I remember girls in my grade being like, Tyson Motzenbacher is like the hot lifeguard. Like they, they would talk about you as like the hot one. And, really? Yeah. And I'd be like, I knew that guy. And, or I would tell them, I'm, I'm like, oh, I know that guy. Like I know Tyson. Yeah. And it was very impressive. Everybody was very impressed. Um, I was the world's worst lifeguard. That's terrible. I was horrible. Um, I maybe not like at the actual life saving part. I think I probably could have done that, but the sort of like day to day tasks, I was very bad at them. You just went to tan. Was that kind of it? Yeah, kind of like um, I came to I came to get a paycheck, but but then when I got there, I just was so bored. I've I have like horrible ADD, so like the idea of sitting in a chair for like you know an hour at a time or whatever was yeah. the worst job ever for me that sounds awful yeah so like one time i pierced my ears while i was lifeguarding oh my gosh and one time i um i made this i would always make these contests up for these kids so i would like tell the kids there's the, all these river rocks out next to the pool and i told this kid one time to go and fill his t-shirt up with rocks and then he, i told him to throw all the rocks in the pool and then i said on the megaphone i said whoever gets the most rocks wins but the there was like so much dirt on the rocks that the whole pool turned into like this huge muddy soup. Oh man. And you couldn't see the bottom of the pool anymore because it was covered in, it was full of mud now. And, uh, my boss came out and I almost got fired for that one, but I, and I for sure should have. Oh my gosh. That is, I didn't absolutely nuts. I kind of want to unpack this idea. Um, you, you grew up in Pullman most of your life, right? Um, I, we moved there when I was in, the fifth grade. In the fifth grade. Yeah. Okay. So like your formative years, junior high, high school, um, you and I kind of, I mean, we both had the same experience. We grew up mm. yeah, in a yeah. small town 
And then we kind of left our small town and then we went on to do kind of creative things. Right. And there's a lot of people who stay in our little hometown. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to say that that's a negative thing. Like I've got friends who are like awesome and they like went to college somewhere and they studied agriculture and then they went back and they're going to like innovate and do amazing things on their family's farm. Sure. Like that's super cool. Um, but there is something to be said for the fact that like we're in totally different places now. Like, right. What do you think was the catalyst for you in like getting out of your, of like our little hometown? Um, I think, I think one thing for me was, um, so my parents moved my family all the, like tons and tons and tons of times before we came to Pullman. So I always sort of had this feeling that that was like what you did, Mm. that like you weren't supposed to stay someplace for very long. Um, I think that was part of it. I think part of it was that I was really, really thirsty to see what the world looked like. And I think that when you're in a when you're in a small town, you have this perception that like the world is better, right? That like there are better things outside of this because your perspective is just it's just basically, you know, your hands in front of your face. That's as much as you can see of the world. And I think that when you leave home, your perspective changes from it being from it being uh, better to it being bigger, right? Mm. And like, which isn't necessarily better. It's exactly. just that there is more. And like, I think that for me, one thing that really changed when I left was that I've started viewing agriculture and education as like noble pursuits. Yeah. That was a big thing that changed. Because I think those that, were the only two jobs in our town for the most part. You worked for the university or you worked for a farm. Exactly. Or yeah. you like supported the people who did by yeah, so like I'm, having a restaurant so that they could eat. Yeah, you owned the beer store. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, or my like my dad was a principal. And what what did you, what were your what did your parents do again? My dad worked for the university. Yeah, 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 yeah totally, exactly. Yeah, so it was like um, that's that was that was how it was. And I think that like sort of seeing those things as the noble pursuits of life. I don't. know. I think it's important. One part of growing up mm-hmm. is seeing that like bigger is not always better, but it is more. Yeah. You know, yeah, it, that's that's been something interesting. And I left for, I moved to Portland, right? And you, for the last several years, have been living in San Diego, yep. right? Yeah. And uh, you, for a while, were like working at a Starbucks, mm-hmm, totally. Uh, and then from there, you kind of took the leap into uh, the music world, and you kind of went full on. Like, what was that like? Yeah, I mean, so I moved to San Diego. I was actually supposed to move to Portland. Oh, really? Yeah, I was supposed to move to Portland. And work in the music business, I was going to be a booking agent. Huh. And then that I graduated from college in a bad year for the American economy. <laughs> and one week before I was supposed to start, the guy, the head of the agency called me and said that they were high and dry. They were like totally out of business. Wow. So I was like, I guess I'll just move to San Diego. And I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, yeah. So I moved down there. I, I was working at, I got a job at Starbucks. I think I like, one thing was that I felt trapped in that did you work did you work jobs when you moved to portland i was fortunate enough to be able to like kickstart my photography business when yeah, i moved yeah, yeah. to portland so i kind of was self-employed when i jumped in totally um, oh wait actually no that's not true i i just never talk about this so i forget this yeah i ended up getting a job uh at makeup artist magazine whoa this, i've never shared this before I i'm got really a, excited to hear isn't about this it. hilarious yeah i uh yeah i was doing social media for them and it was super fun, like learning how to do social media stuff with them. But it's like, it was a magazine for yeah. makeup artists. Right. 
And so I actually know way more about makeup than uh, than anybody would ever expect from me. Hmm. Um, but so that was like, you know, I had to pick up a job like that when I moved yeah. to Portland. Yeah. So I think for me, I remember like and like the music business is hard. It's it's a hard business. Totally. Um, and I think like starting out, I always knew that's like ever since I was a kid, like that's what I always wanted. I wanted to write songs like what I wanted to do um, and play them and like share a human experience with with a group of people yeah. and I grew up watching you play yeah totally so um I remember I was, at, I was at Starbucks and I didn't really know how to start and I think like one thing when I talk to people that are looking at making the leap I was telling them like I think I, I, I remember feeling so stuck and I actually also think that feeling stuck is a is a sort of like inherent characteristic of being in your mid to early 20s hmm. I think that that is part of it okay is be, feeling stuck yeah um, and I don't think that that is bad, but I think it's good to know that that's part of that stage yeah, of life. That like a lot of people experience this at this point because you're, it's a hump. You're getting over a hump. Yeah. Like I remember when I was like at the, in this stage of my life, one of my friend's dads, there were like 15 of us living by the beach in San Diego and just like trying to surf and figure out our lives. And one of our friend's dads called us on speakerphone and told us that we were wasting our twenties. He's like, you guys are wasting your twenties. And that hit me really hard and it was I didn't know what to say to him because I didn't know what to do. I was like, mm-hmm. well, what am I supposed to do, man? Like am I supposed to go work at a firm? Like is that what's expected of me? Like am I like I don't know what that means. Like I don't know what a firm is. Yeah. But am I supposed to get a firm job? <laughs> and uh and so I remember being at Starbucks and feeling like um feeling stuck there. And being like my, the only thing I can do with my life is to try to do the next Starbucks job, which is like, and I remember people be like, you should be a shift manager. I'm like, I don't want to be a shift manager. I want to play the guitar. Yeah. And then they'd be like, and then I'd be like, this is the immediate thing that I can do is get a shift manager job at Starbucks. And I, I couldn't see outside of that at all. So a few, a few years ago, this kid came up to me and he was like, he was like, I want to, he's like, I want to talk to you. I said, okay. He's like, um, I want to do what you do. And this was a year or two into me playing music full time. And I said, why do you want to do that? He said, because I feel like if I had influence, then I could do good with my influence. Hmm. And I said, well, what do you do with the influence you have right now? And he said, well, nothing because I don't have any influence. I was like, well, you have, you have, a, you have a little sister, right? He's like, I was like, or a brother or something. So yeah, I was like, well, there you go. What do you do with that influence? I said, because whatever you do with whatever influence you have, you will do it with more influence. And then I said to him, and right now you want to be me because you just saw me on stage and it looked like my life was rad. Um, But what you don't, what you didn't see today was every February when I am crying on the beach, wondering how I'm going to pay my bills that month. (laughs) And I was like, he was like, you do that? I said, I've been playing music for two years now and it has happened both years. Wow. Every February, there is a day where I am on the beach crying because I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. And I was like, and that's partly because February is a hard month to make money playing music, but also just because like playing, like making that leap is difficult. But the thing that I want to tell people and wish I could have told myself then is that like, hey man, like crying on the beach in February is a better alternative than feeling stuck. Mm. Um it's okay to feel afraid and it's okay to worry about your future. Um, but it's not okay to be feeling stuck. Um, not to say that like everyone should go quit their jobs and yeah. music full time or whatever, but I just think that like, 
there is something for everyone to do that is not being stuck. Yeah, well, so. it's not just this idea of being stuck. It's more so this idea of staying stuck. Totally. Of just totally. kind of, yeah, I think that we all feel that stuck feeling. Absolutely. And the trick is you just, you push through or like right. you jump out or you try something new. Yeah. Um, because the moment that you become stagnant, you lose your ability to you know, do what you want to do, but also, you know, make an impact in the ways that you want to make an impact. And also I think to be a, like to live the full human experience. Yeah. I think that one of the most important things about living the full human experience is to be all of the things that it means to be a human. Like, so that means feeling sad and feeling happy and feeling afraid and, um, doing things that are uncomfortable. Like, I think that kind of the worst thing that you can do as a human is just to like be comfortable. Hmm. Like, and by be comfortable, I mean like be comfortable, like work your way into a position of comfort and then just nest in it for your whole life. Yeah. That, that to me is what I don't want to do. Okay. And so how did you, you felt stuck, you were in your job and then all of a sudden like you were doing music full time. Like what was the, yeah. what was the jump? What was the leap? The leaping those? point. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so one thing that happened to me was that when I was going to take that job at the booking agency, the head booking agent was basically like, Hey man, if you're going to work here, you, it's going to be conflict of interest if you're playing. So you got, you got to tell me that like, you're going to lay that down for a while. And I agreed mm. to not m- make music for at least the first few years I was going to be working there. Um, and so I had that in my mind when I moved to California and a friend of mine came up to me and he said, uh, he's like, you need to make music. And I was like, yeah, okay, well, I don't know how to do that. I don't know what to do. And he said, what do you need? And I said, I think I need (laughs) (laughs) $3,000. And he was like, why $3,000? And in that time in my mind, 3,000, it could have might as well have been infinity thousand dollars <laughs> i was like just we were i mean there were like six of us living in a two-bedroom apartment or something so um i was like if i have three thousand dollars i think i can make a record and print a thousand copies of it and then i can sell those to people <laughs> and he was like okay and he went around and found three thousand dollars for me and gave it to me in a check and said pay me this back if you can and I said, wow. So I made the record, the, this little EP. Um, and then I started just kind of touring. So the first thing that I did was I just booked a tour up the West Coast. Like I played, I think, seven shows or something. I played, And I just called places that I knew had music. Um, and it was also partly my background of like trying to be a booking agent. I kind of knew a little bit about what to do with that. Anyway, so I booked all these shows. And I think like anywhere from three to 40 people came to them. Whoa. Yeah, which is pretty sweet. Um, <laughs> like we played at, uh, where do we, we played in, I was playing solo actually for those shows. I was with one other person for a while. We played these tiny little rooms, little coffee shops and whatever else. And I sold a bunch of CDs to people and I sold a bunch of CDs to people online and then I put that money away and that was basically the beginning so after that, I mean, I did a, I've done a, everything that you can do yeah. in the music business. Like after that, I was doing, I played bass for a band for a while, a horrible band that was trying to hire me out to go on tour. So I went on tour with them for a while. And then I went, um, I played uh, guitar in a different band. 
and then I toured my records more, and I did some Young Life camps. I did like a few of those in the summer. And so you were just you were just kind of covering the spectrum. You're like, I'm doing whatever it takes to to make music. Whatever it takes. Um, and that actually, so that's something that I've been thinking about a lot now. Was that the first stage of my career as a musician was just trying? I was like, this is what I want to do. This is the banner, music. Yeah. So what's on anything that is under the banner that gives me money? Totally. I will do it. Because you want, I mean, that people do that all the time in photography, where they say, I want to be a professional photographer. And so they do all these things like they're a sports photographer, they're a family photographer, right. they're a pet wedding photographer, wedding photographer, or wedding photographer, all these things when what they really want is to be this other thing. But as long as they're right. being a professional, like as long as they're making money doing this thing that they like or a right. tangent of what they like, they do it. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Well, I think actually that's phase two. Okay. I think that's phase two because Interesting. Um, because I think that figuring out how to run a business yeah. is is hard to do. Totally. So like figuring out how to, I mean, just like basic things of running a business, like booking and like invoicing people and accounts receivable, like all these things that are business school 101 yeah. that don't, it doesn't even matter if you took business school 101 because like you have to learn them for how they work for totally. your own business. So. That for me was kind of the first step. It was like, okay, okay, I figured out sort of how this works a little bit. I think I can kind of do my taxes now, kind of. And then and you have money to pay taxes for also. Right, which yeah. Is there's, great. there's like a little bit of money coming <laughs> in, so that, that's that's awesome. And then it's like, okay, now I, somebody said to me, and this was just you know within the last like three years or something, was like, whatever you do every day is what you do. Hmm. They said it doesn't matter what your job title is. This could be for anything. It's whatever yeah. you, whatever you do every day is what you do. Um, and I thought to myself, well, what do I do every day? And I kind of like listed the things that I do every day. And I was like, that isn't what I want to do. Yeah. Like I don't want to do those things yeah. every day. For a lot of people it's probably like, I mean, I know for me oftentimes it's like it is emailing and it is like writing blog posts. Like it's just all these things that are, like not for me, you know, not storytelling. That's what I want to be right. doing more of. It's like, totally. it's not storytelling. And so that's interesting. Yeah. What you do every day is what you do. Yeah. 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 And that was, it seems so simple, but it's so obvious. Yeah. And I think that like, I mean, in any job that you do, there's going to be stuff that you do that you don't want to. Totally. Like, like, but if, if those are all enabling you to do what you want to do every day, then that to me is the dream. If you can do what you want to do every day, and make a living, then that is the professional dream, right? Yeah. So, and that's, I feel like for me, like lately it's been like, okay, so that meant like saying no to some things that I would never have said no to in the past um, because they were really comfortable things for me yeah. to do and they were helpful for me. So I was like saying no to some of those other things. And actually uh, there's another, uh, there's a podcast that I listened to with this guy named Merlin Mann who I really like. And he said on one of his podcasts, he said that what anything that you say yes to, you say no to a thousand other things. Hmm. And I was like, okay, that's really interesting because you don't see that as the truth early on or even later on, really. Yeah. It's like, okay, like here's an opportunity. I need to do this opportunity. Yeah. Not realizing that every every decision that you make is taking you down a particular path, like branches on a tree. Yeah. And that like any branch that you pick, there are now... A thousand branches going the other direction that would have different opportunities. Totally. So um, I don't know. That was that was good for me too. Saying like I'm just gonna I'm gonna try to, and it's, it's still not the case for me. But I'm gonna try to do things that I 
would like to do because otherwise I am picking to do things that I don't want to do long term. Okay, so remind me again. Phase one is... Phase one is, I think it is just jumping. It, phase one is just like taking a leap. It's, I think it is finding a way where you can have enough of a pad there, a safety pad. I mean, like when I was working at Starbucks, like my manager there was amazing and was like, hey, we love what you're doing. Like anytime you need to leave, leave. And there got to a point where it was kind of event horizon where she was like, "Um, okay, you are gone for three months. Yeah. And you're still technically on the payroll. Like I remember I worked worked a day and then I went on tour for two months which was straight into another tour for a month. And then I came back and I worked one day and I came in and I was like, Hey, I have another two, three months gone starting, <laughs> starting on Monday. And she was like, you should probably just quit. <laughs> so, and, and I said, okay, well, I'm not sure this is going to work. And, uh, and she was like, well, if you ever need to come back, like you can come back. So I think that for me was yeah. really, really helpful because I you created a You created some sort of safety net. I had a bit of a safety net, yeah, and I didn't know how that was going to work. Yeah, but, it's still um, a risk. You weren't playing it safe. Totally. But th- there wasn't really a worst-case scenario. No, worst-case scenario is that I is that I was going to go backwards, which would have felt really defeating to me, yeah. but it would have been okay. Yeah, you wouldn't have disappeared. Right. And also, by the way, I'm not saying that, like, the goal is to leave your job at Starbucks. Like, I no. I loved, like, I have a ton of friends that work there still, and I liked working there. And, like, that's not a, that is a noble pursuit. Yeah. Just like working on a farm. Yeah. I, th- I think it's just, like, it's if you feel stuck in something, anything. You could be stuck feeling, feeling stuck playing music for a living. Yeah. And I think I, like, know some people that do that. And I know some people that work in coffee or whatever that don't feel stuck. And I would rather be them than my friends that play music and are stuck. So. Yeah. Um, exactly. Okay. So phase one is create a safety net, but like take a jump, create a safety net, take a jump. Phase two is phase two is that is whatever you do every day is what you do. So just because your job title says one thing, you need to look at what you do every day because your job title in my case being songwriter and performer doesn't mean anything. Yeah. What what you do every day is what means everything. Yeah. Okay. And then phase three is, I think phase three is is just building that those two things together. Yeah. So uh, I think it's I think it's continuing to take those risks with safety nets. Um, but I think it's bi- like that's where I feel like that's where I am now. So I don't even maybe I don't know what phase three yeah. is. But I, I think that like yeah, fa- I think that what I'm doing now, what I where I'm at right now is that I want to like do things that I love that inspire me that yeah. make me uh, the all of the reasons that I fell in love with music in the first place yeah and it's getting yeah it's you going down the specific path you want to be going down it's yeah maybe that's it and it's you know probably a part of that is probably the idea that you need to say no to good things right so that you can say yes to great great things things. exactly yeah i like that a lot. that's that's probably phase three there you go we decided it phase three can't wait to find out what phase four is i'm not there yet no way (laughs) oh man um so I want to transition a little bit, uh, and this is a little bit of a heavier note, but yeah. um, around in this same time, uh, your mom came down with cancer. That's right? Yeah, she did. So she was, uh, my mom was a my hero also. Your mom is incredible. Yeah, did you know her? I knew, I, I had a few interactions with yeah. her that I remember, but then I also just like, 
I knew a lot of people that knew her. Like yeah, she, yeah, yeah. She was loved by the community. She was, you know. Yeah. And I knew you, and I knew your sister, right. and I knew your dad. Yeah, Tyson's dad was my uh, middle school principal. <laughs> um, Did he ever suspend you? No, I don't think so. Yeah. Maybe he suspended know. me like four times. He still brings it up. That's great. Um, yeah, so I mean, during that time, so I was like, I was trying to figure out how to play music, and I was touring a ton. I was gone all the time. My mom got sick, and uh, um, that was like, you know, obviously a huge blow to me. And um, I think that like, basically the way the way that that worked out was that she would call me and she would say, "When are you going to come home?" And I was I was in denial the whole time. I was like, "She's going to get better. Like, she's going to be." And also because she's a strong, she was a strong person. So like. Um, the way that she talked about it was not with fear. Mm-hmm. So, and I think when someone that you love talks with fear, it feels immediate. And when someone that you love who's going through a hard time doesn't talk with fear, it's easy to sort of push it aside. So I didn't go home. I like hardly ever went home. And and I think while she was sick, and I think part of it was because I was avoiding it. And it's half because I was avoiding it because I don't, I naturally avoid hardship. I think everyone does, but I think I maybe do more than most people. And uh, and secondly, because I thought I was lying to myself and telling myself that she was going to get better. So finally, when um, things got really bad, I don't even know what they what they were, but they're, they're, she would talk about her numbers, which is some blood count number thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. I don't really – talking about this stuff like logistically is the worst, but basically she had her numbers. And her numbers were if they went up, it was bad. And if they went down, that was good. And so her numbers were always going up and down. It was this constant roller coaster. And one day her numbers went way up. And she called me and she's like, numbers are way up. Time to come home. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, it got real, real fast. And so I, I flew home to be with her then. And um, and that was, yeah, that was like I canceled everything. It was the first time I'd done that. Like, I canceled like five months of gigs. I was wow. like, I'm just coming home. It was in uh, September. And you were kind of, at this point, you were... I don't want to say living the dream, but you were you were you know on a further phase than you were at the beginning. Yeah, and I bet that was hard for you. Well, I mean, the thing is that like, oh man, like maybe this is just me, but like I think that in a creative field or any time that you are owning a business or whatever, everything feels so important and so immediate. So like, for me, it was like I've got this gig, or and this maybe so and so is going to be there, and um. You know, if I don't, if I cancel this thing, like who knows what'll, who knows what that'll screw up for me? And I, and I think I felt like, for a long time in my life, I felt like the ground that I was standing on in every part of my life was just, it was, I was standing on thin ice in everything. Like I was on big rickety stilts, <laughs> and that any any tremor in the situation was, I was going to fall, and it was going to be horrible. And part of that was that I didn't know what falling would look like which I think is the worst. If you know what the fall is going to look like, I think you can brace for it. But for me, it was just kind of like it, the world will end. And so the whole time that I was kind of like, I was, I was, yeah, things were starting to work, which they hadn't, I mean, like I said, I was crying on the beach in February, so they weren't working that well. <laughs> but, <laughs> but like they were starting to work and I was like, oh man. And so, yeah, like coming home then was basically me in some ways. It was the first time for sure that I said to myself, Hey, I had to look myself in the face and say, are there things in your life that are more important to you? Are, are there actually? Because the obvious answer to that is, yeah, of course there are things more important to me than my stupid career. Like people are more important. 
but then in practicality, like what you do every day is what you do, right? So like, um, do you actually love your family and your friends? Are you actually willing to put that things aside when it comes down to it for them? And I really wasn't for a long time until like I got that call and I was like, okay, hey, like this is this is a short life and there are things that are important in it. And so I, I did, I went home and I canceled all my gigs, all all like five months of them, all my shows. I had a couple tours in there and a bunch of other stuff. And I just flew home. I was just with my, my family for that whole time. And then she um, basically like counseled me through her own passing away. Wow. And, uh, and um, yeah, and I was with her in the hospice and she passed away and, um, and yeah, I was, I was there with her. So, and it was, it was kind of a, the end of it. I think I remember I was sitting with her, um, in her room and she was really sick and she was kind of not really with it. And I said to her, I said to her, uh, <laughs> I said, mom, I need you to tell me that I was a good son to you because I felt so guilty for not being home. And she looked at me and she said, you're, you were very entertaining. <laughs> and I said, mom, that's not what I mean. And then she winked at me. <laughs> It was like her saying, like, it was her making an entertainer pun to me. Oh, uh, I was saying, like, I don't. It's okay, you're here, and it, um, and you get it. You get why it was important for you to come home. And this was like she was barely with it. Like she couldn't really put a sentence together. So I thought that was really clever of her <laughs> in that time. That's powerful. Yeah, she. Yeah, it's got goosebumps. Yeah, dude. She was. She was a clever one. Man. And so she passes away. We yeah, she had a she had a um her memorial service at my dad's school which 700 people came to. Unbelievable. Yeah, which was crazy. From all across the state. Yeah, everywhere. I mean, there was a ton of everybody from Pullman was there and everybody from all yeah, all over the state really. She was I didn't realize how many people like knew her and loved her and then it was like, "Whoa, a lot of people are here right yeah. now." Like the whole gym of the school was full. Wow. I was like, "This like this is a huge thing. It's like a huge event for this little tiny town." Man. So and what was your what was your response in the aftermath? You know, you said your mom was counseling you through everything, and then she wasn't counseling you through it. So before she passed away, she said to me, um, we were driving in the car, and she said, she said, Tyson, you gotta you gotta lean into this. And I was like, I was like, what do you mean by that? And she said, you are gonna try to avoid it, so don't do that. And I was like, well, what what does that look like practically? And she goes, I don't know, do something stupid. <laughs> I was like, like what? She goes, I don't know, just do something stupid and then think about it. <laughs> That's was, good. And I was like, okay. Um, so I was sitting in the hospice care. Uh, my sister was there. She was doing a puzzle. My sister who speaks of you very fondly, by the way. Your sister is the best. She's going to listen to this and she's going to be so pleased that we talked about uh, her. That's yeah. so good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I hung out with her a year and a half ago, which is oh, yeah. more recently than I hung out. I mean, you and I hung out last like 10 years ago. It was a very long time ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so she was, my sister was in a puzzle and I was looking at my computer and one of my friends who lives in the Bay Area, lives in Oakland, posted a, a Facebook thing that was like, hey, does anybody want to walk? into the city with me with the city being Bay area for San Francisco. And, and I read that and I was like, does anybody want to walk to the city? Does anybody want to walk to the city? And I was like, that's what I'm going to do. It's like, I'm just going to walk to San Francisco. So I like get up out of my, out of my chair and I walk into my mom's room. Once again, this is when she was in hospice. So she was barely, barely with it at all. And I, I go, hey, Mom, I, I know what I'm going to do. 
<laughs> and she opened her eyes and I said, I'm going to walk to San Francisco. And she, she kind of closed her eyes and then she said, you know, you could go all that way without getting anything done at all. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, damn it. Like this isn't, that's not a good enough fix for her. So anyway, yeah, so uh, she passed away. We did the memorial service. It was beautiful. And then I walked, I went home, flew home to San Diego. And then I woke up at 5 a.m. a couple days later. And I, I live in a town called Solana Beach, which is like north San Diego. And uh, my mom had written me a letter that she wanted me to read later. Um, and then she had a, a, we she was cremated, so I had some of her ashes. And I, I walked down to the beach and I read her letter and I put half of, this thing of ashes that was a film canister for my film camera and I put half of the ashes at this spot this little beach by my house and then I just started walking north and I did that for a month basically I just walked every day for a month it was actually 40 days exactly which was not planned wow but it it, it always felt like that was sort of poetic that it happened to be 40 days um so yeah I just like I would just kind of walk for a while and then I would find somebody's haystack or whatever <laughs> Or in LA, like I camped out in LA for four days, five five days in LA. I camped out in Orange County, camped out on the Marine base at Camp Pendleton. And so your stupid thing was that you walked. My stupid thing was that I just walked for forty days. Um, and you and did you think about it? Yeah, yeah. So that was the the way that I have tried to describe it. I think is that every morning I would wake up, and so you know the cars start coming, and I I literally walked like. Uh, in California, it's the P- it's the the PCH, the Pacific Coast Highway, which is the one or the one hundred and one yeah. or the five, and it's the it's uh, beautiful. It is beautiful. It's so beautiful. And spe- some places more than others, um, but it is a highway. So, like when you're driving it, it's like the California like dream, right? It's like these big, you know, sweeping cliffs and ocean and just In and Out Burgers as far as the eye can see. <laughs> but um, it's it's gorgeous, and you know, there's big big surs there, which is incredible, like one of the most incredible places in the world. But it's a highway, so so when you're walking it, it's like filthy. It's a highway, yeah, it's like filthy and loud. So like, <laughs> I think like in my mind, I've been driving that highway as long as I lived in California, and it's like, oh, this is the most beautiful, pristine, peaceful place. But then you get out of the car, and it's just a bunch of people like listening to Pitbull in their Cadillacs or whatever. <laughs> and so every morning I would wake up really early, as early as I could, like when it was still dark um, because there were no cars in the dark. And I would walk down the middle of the highway in the dark. And I would have no headphones on or whatever, or just me and my backpack and my shoes just being like along the road. And I would pick something. So like I basically like you know in grief or whatever you've got your the place where you keep your your mind boxes <laughs> all the things that you have in your brain um all of you know your memories and your feelings or whatever this is the best way that I at least in my experience I'm not a psychiatrist so I don't know but this is uh, official actually official science called mind boxes <laughs> <laughs> I so, like this Yeah so I would uh, you know you've got this place in your in your brain that's mind boxes and when you have a traumatic experience or whatever the mind boxes get all get tipped over so your your all of the things that you keep in your mind boxes are scattered all over this room in your brain 
And so I sort of realized that, that basically everything that I knew to be true, all of the way that I remembered things even, was all different. It was all scattered. So I would go and I would, I would find a box and I would, this would be in the dark, in the middle of the highway, and I would find it and I would, and I would look in it and then I would sort of take all the things on the floor and I would put it back in there. Like, like for instance, like the first day I remember uh, the, the thing that I picked up in my mind box was, was, um, was like, okay, what is gone? And it was, uh, hey, mom is not going to be at your wedding. Okay. Um, I can wrap my mind around that. She's not going to be at my wedding. So what does that look like? And then I would kind of take all the pieces of the mom's not going to be at your wedding mind box. And I would look at them and I would say, man, that is lame. And I would take them and I'd put them in the box and I'd put it back on the shelf. And that was basically what I did every morning. I would pick a new thing and I would try to reorganize my mind. So that that was what I did in the mornings. And uh, and then, you know, by 8 a.m., it's people listening to Pitbull and their, and their convertibles. So it, I, I would, at that point, like, I would just try to put my head down and, like, get through it because it was – it's hot and stinky and there's cigarette butts everywhere and <laughs> people like trying, like people like just like mad at you. People are just mad at you for being, yeah. for existing. So I was like, Oh, get through that part. But the mornings were magical and the evenings too. So, And 40 days later you made it to San Francisco, California. Yep. What, what did it feel like as you were walking up? Like you could probably see San Francisco. What, like, what did that feel like? There's this tower, uh, the Sutro Tower in San Francisco is this big radio tower that's up on the up on the hill. And uh, I could see it from pretty far off. Um, so the day that I knew I was going to, the day that I was like, oh, today I'm going to make it. I was in this little town that's kind of just the south end of San Francisco. And <laughs> I went into this McDonald's there. And I was trying to write down what it would feel like to finish the trip and these like 15 dudes walked in that were easily in their 90s and um they all had their like world war ii bomber jackets on with their patches and their hats and everything and they're like you know their whatever ship they were on and they come in they sit down there's like there's like 10 of them sitting at this table next to me and um i'm trying to like kind of look through it and answer the question of like what is it going to be like now and these guys started talking about basically like the war (laughs) so like they're talking about the war and they've got their coffee there and i can tell that they've like been doing this for a long time it's these gold group of buddies that come and they get together and they talk about the war and um they start talking about sort of like all their buddies that don't come and hang out with them anymore and uh eventually like kind of the the tide of the conversation turned and they, in less words, were trying to figure out if they were going to be okay, mm. I think, was the best way that I can describe it. Was like in this time of their life where they are basically like sitting at the bus stop, right? They're waiting for the bus to come, right? And they're like, are we going to be okay? And I realized that like that was the same question that I was asking myself the whole time was, am I going to be okay? And watching these guys, like, um, sort of at the end of their lives ask the same question, I realized, like, hey, that is not a question that we ever answer. 
the are we going to be okay is never a question that we ever answer. I think that that is part of moving through life and that is part of being okay is just continuing to wonder and hope that we will all be okay in the end. And that was what I wrote I, I wrote down about um, sort of just that feeling of hope was that like I think we are all okay in the end and yet never having answered that question even when we are 90 and talking about the war at McDonald's. And so that was what I was thinking about. I remember like I remember ex- like specifically I was walking up the highway and I saw the Sutro Tower there and it was the end just like these dudes at the end of these dudes lives and I was like sitting there I was like it, it, this is such a day of ends for me. And that was my question was are we going to turn out okay? And I think we are and I think we're never going to know that for sure. That was what I that was like kind of what I thought about on that last day. And did that is that what inspired the album? Is that so? I mean, you released an album recently, yeah, and that's that's kind of the heart of the album in a lot of ways. Is... So yeah, yeah. So I mean, when I was doing my mind boxes in the morning, that was um, part of what would happen. Is it like so? I've got one one of my songs on my album is called Honest, and uh, it, the chorus of it is literally like it is that process. It's me listing out the things that are gone now, right? So it's like a it's me trying to figure out what's gone. And it, like, it's a, it's a pair of jeans, like the, the chorus is it's a pair of jeans. It's a rude awake. It's all these, like, it's a list of all these different things that I found are gone. And like, all of those have little memories attached to me. So, and I mean, like most of that record was either, like I wrote lyrics while I was walking down the side of the road. Okay. So there, a lot of that record was either directly inspired by, or the songs were actually written while I was walking. Wow. Um, so um, that's kind of where, and I mean, without the, that process of waiting, waking up and, and sorting through it, I wouldn't have any, more or less, I wouldn't have any of those yeah. songs that I wrote after that process, at least. Because, I mean, if you hadn't done that, you might have gone back to playing things safe. You might have gotten into your little rut and tried to keep your head down and not think through things, and you would have maybe stayed there for a while, but you didn't, you you jumped yeah, well, I mean, I think that it, it was the process of saying, like, hey, like, that, that question of my mom basically without words saying, like, is this more important to you? And I think that, like, there's, I mean, you know, this happens in Nashville a lot. It happens in L.A. a lot, I guess. It happens everywhere. But, like, the sort of thing is, like, the question of how do I make, how do I find the magical algorithm that makes me a hit song? Right? Like, how do, like, there is a, what's the, what's the trick? What's the th- what's the thing that I plug my guitar into that makes a hit song come out of it? And I think that that can sort of uh, happen in any anything in in music and in art. And for me, it was just like as long as I just sort of keep plugging away at this thing, um, it'll work. It'll work out. And I think like kind of that that process in me was just me realizing like that art is supposed to inform life. Right, like art is supposed to be about life. Your life isn't supposed to be about art. Hmm. I, I and I, I think that like we get them switched. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I think that like that's the best art is just honest commentary on reality and on life. And if the only reality that you're living in is how do I make art, then I don't think you really have anything to say. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I don't know if you do, because because life is bigger than. Yeah. than that and you kind of on your walk you got to wrestle through the process of doubt and right. am I going to be okay yeah. and what are these feelings and like where like what do I do with this pain right and 
and that's what people connect with yeah. in the album. Like I've been listening to the album on repeat hmm. just in like preparation for hanging out. Yeah. And it's it's incredible because it's so raw and so real. Hmm. And I my pain points, I feel your pain points. But if you yeah. were if you were sitting in a studio writing that right. without any experience behind it, you like I wouldn't be connecting with it in the sure. same way. Yeah, I mean, and I think that, like, you can, we we recorded that thing up in this little, like, tiny little studio up in Victoria, B.C. that's, like, basically completely covered in blackberries. And I was in there, and I was, like, it was pretty soon after the after I finished my walk, and it was, like, still pretty real. It was still pretty new. And I think you can, like, I remember, like, sitting in there, like, feeling it again. Mm. And I, I don't know if, like, I, you know, I, I'm not saying that all music needs to be just this super like rot emotion that's kind of the the policy that was the process of this one for me and it won't be in the future like you know in other records that i make yeah are not are probably not going to have such a crazy like crisis of faith and a crazy um spin of emotions and loss but my hope is that i will enter into them in the same way which is just like from an honest perspective of human life yeah um, and not an honest perspective of what is it? Why am I having a hard time being a professional musician? Yeah, <laughs> you know, I feel like a huge part of your album. I mean, of course, it was it was about are we going to be all right? It was about loss, but a huge part of it felt like it was about doubt. And I think that's something that a lot of people shy away from. Um, I know that I've had times where I've like shied away from doubting. You know, like I right. feel like we kind of grow up and we're like. Like, I don't know about you, but I feel like I was taught in a lot of ways, like, you like you shouldn't be doubting things. Like, mm. you should feel pretty confident in these things that yeah. you were raised in, whether it's this idea of, you know, like, how you see the world, how you see other people, how you right. see God, how you see politics, how you see yourself. Yeah. Um, But I, I've found, for me, that, like, by challenging the way that I see the world and by, in, in a lot of ways, purposefully kind of tipping over my mind boxes and yeah, reassessing yeah, yeah. things and being like what do I actually think about this? Like what is actually true? What is, right? what is the truth? I think it's healthy and important. I think yeah. that it allows you, I think that there's a lot of stuff in our, you know, to continue using the metaphor in our mind boxes. That's <laughs> just crap. It's a lot of BS. And when you strip it down and you're like, okay, that thing I believed it's true, but right. I can get rid of some of this baggage from it. Sure. Um, I think that that's something that's powerful. And so, and so that's just what I've been thinking about as I've been listening to your album is this mm. idea of, doubt and like the beauty and importance of that and right why like i think that's okay i think that's something that like sometimes you almost need permission to be like it's okay to to doubt i think like if if there's any one message that i could have about this record is that it's not only okay to doubt i think that it's necessary um like i mean it goes back to kind of our our theory of being comfortable or of nesting right like that it seems to me at least that like a big part of growing up at least in my perception of it, was that you figure out what you want to do, you figure out where you want to live, you figure out who you want to marry, you figure out how many kids you want to have, and you figure out what you believe. And then you nest, right? Like you get those things and then you build sticks around it, and then that's it. That's your life. And you're, and it's basically there's a two point. There's two points in your life. It's that the time when you are building your nest, which is everything that you – figuring out everything that you want and everything that you believe. And then the second half is – sitting in your nest and like 
the way that I described this to me was was like in in our lives, um, inherently there are times when the data that is given to you uh, via the your experience and the universe, <laughs> it is in direct conflict with what you believe. And so you have a couple of options in that moment. And one option is that you say, well, this data must be wrong. Or the second one is that you put them in a ring and you let them fist fight each other. And that is not fun. It sucks. It's like it's uncomfortable. Um, so for me, the one was like in the first song on my album is talking about like the idea of praying to God and if that works at all. So like, you know, growing up with the idea that like in a more or less like evangelical Christian household, like if you pray to God, it ma- it matters and he listens. And I was sitting on the porch with my mom and I was praying for her and my dad was in the living room with the door open. And when I finished praying for her, he says, he said, he said Tyson, I don't think that Jesus is in business of healing anymore. This is at the end. This is like kind of at the end when I had come home and I was like, well, then if he doesn't heal, does he even listen? And if he doesn't listen, then does he even exist? Does he even care? And if he doesn't care, then does he exist? And for me, I was like, my the easy option would have been like to say, oh, well, you know, the good Lord gives and the good Lord takes away and his ways are not our ways or whatever. Like the things that you hear when someone says that to you as a, it's yeah, it's kind As of the logic. Kid. It's like the oh, that's what I'm supposed to say. Yeah, and that's and you could just be like, that's what's right. So totally, that's what it is. This is what's true, even. Yeah, and being in the middle of the thing, you know, somebody could offer that advice to you in right. the moment, but when you're living it, it's a lot harder to take the advice at face value. Well, I think it's impossible if you're being honest with yourself, yeah. right? So my reaction was that I wasn't gonna like let that be the case, and I was just gonna like let them fight. And that was like, that was one of my morning, that was like, that was a mind box that got flipped over, right? It's like, oh man, like these two things don't make sense together. Um, and and I, I, uh, I, th- I mean, I think that you can be someone that doesn't doubt regardless of your beliefs. You can be someone who believes in a higher power who decides to not doubt that. And um, that is a lot of people who believe in a higher power. Or you can be someone who doesn't want to think about it. Or you can be someone who actively does not believe. Or I mean, you, in anything that you believe in. And I think that, like, you know, even the idea of science is that you are constantly reevaluating the thing that you believe. Like, that is, it, you are never sure. And, like, I, I've said, I said one time to my friend, we were talking about doubt. And I told him, I said, at this point in my life, like, there are things that I believe in. And there are things that maybe I would even die for, like beliefs that I would even die for. But the only thing that I am sure about is that I am wrong. And I, you know, I might be only a little bit wrong or I might be super wrong, but I know that I'm wrong. I know that I just know that. Like that's the one thing that I'm sure of is that I'm wrong. I know that there are like a lot of things that I believe Maybe some things that I would die to protect them as tenants of my life and my family and my country that I would die for that are wrong. And that's fine. Like, that's okay. And I think that, like, kind of living with that assumption is a better way to live, I think. It's a better way to be a human being is to be living under the assumption that you are wrong.
I mean, the alternative, I mean, you you mentioned this earlier, but the alternative is to not think about it. Right. Or the alternative is to assume you're right. Right. And between those three options, I would love to constantly be reassessing things. Yeah. Assuming that I'm wrong. Totally. I, I think that's where I'm at too. And I don't know if that's all. In fact, I know that that's not always where I've been at. Right. That's been a process of me figuring that out over the last few years. Yeah. But absolutely. There's, uh, there's so, I think there's a lot of beauty in the world when you can see everything as, as a moment to learn. Yeah. You know, if I assume that I'm right, then I lose my wonder. I lose my Mm. opportunity to, yeah, to gain something from somebody else. And I, I think it takes wisdom, you know, mm. if you're constantly being like, oh, that's another thing I'll take. That's another thing that's right. That's another thing that, that I'll accept. Yeah. You, you run into a problem, but if you reject everything, that's another problem. And so yeah, it's this idea that like there's this middle gray area. There's a middle ground, dude. I, I love that. And that's something that I've been thinking a lot lately, too, is just I think that in general, the middle ground is, first of all, I think that the middle ground is radical now. I think that being in the middle ground is the most radical position you can take on yeah. anything. Especially, you know, if without getting too political, you know, in, in today's political season, right. you basically have people who are extremes on both ends, but that's the majority. And so it's, I think that it is point. the vast majority. I think that it, the, I mean, like if you look on uh, Twitter as a great example, like what do you hear? You hear people screaming from each side. Um, on anything or Facebook or whatever, like if you look on the internet, it's there. The everybody is screaming from one side or another. It's like the positions that used to be radical are now the status quo, and I think that's like sort of the compression of American culture that you have to be. If you it, unless you scream really loud about something that's radical, then you don't matter. But like who who is being? I mean, I guess it's hard to have a loud voice when you're standing in the middle, and you're it's, like, well, it's, there's validity to both of your thoughts, but. Yeah, I think that that is the most radical viewpoint is mm-hmm. is to be standing in the middle. Yep, I had never thought of it as the most radical viewpoint, but I love that. And I think, yeah. you know, I think that if I listen to your music, I can hear that that middle point. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, your music, you're not screaming, you're not shouting. It's not like the people on the far ends of the sides aren't going to hear you, right? But some people closer to the middle are going to hear you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's interesting is you created something. It's just a beacon for those who are looking for it. Yeah. And maybe that's what it is. It's that this middle ground is a place where we get to, yeah, we're not trying to win. We're just trying to live and we're trying to learn and we're, I'm mostly we're just trying to grow. I think that's what it is. I think that's exactly right. It's trying to grow and trying to find the beauty in the world and to have like, have a full experience of life, which is not just having fun all the time. It's having a full human experience. And, and I, yeah, I, I don't know if you can, I don't totally know if you can have that from one, if you are sticking to one wall in any part of your life. Um, I think that it's it's being able to walk around in it a bit. Hmm. I think that's where you find the good in it. Yeah. That's what that's what I've always loved about all the stuff that you've done is like finding the way that, that, that human beings are able to interact with one another that brings us hope. Like, I, I just, like, love that. I think it's beautiful. And sometimes you find hope by learning what is hopeless, right? Like, you kind of find you find out um, things by their opposites. And that's kind of, I think, in some ways what this record was for me. But, um, yeah, man, I, I really like that. You find hope by learning what is hopeless. That's beautiful. Um, 
I say we leave it at that. And uh, and I want to transition to this. Every episode, I ask three questions that okay. I love. Question number one, how would you describe the kind of person that you most admire in the world? The person that I admire most in the world, I think, is a curious listener. Curious listener. I think that's what I aspire the most to be like. And I am so not. I think that's one of the reasons why I admire it so much. But people that are just genuinely excited about hearing. Hmm. That's who I admire the most. Curious listener. Curious listener. I like that a lot. What are you consuming right now? Like what what is something that you are reading or watching or just engaging with where you're like, this is this is made for me. This is inspiring me. This is making me live into who I want to be more or think through the things I want to think about. So there's this book called Gilead um, that I just finished. And I always screw up the author's name. Mer- it's Marilyn Robinson. That's what mm. it is. I'm pretty sure. Um, it's about this guy who lives in this town, this little farm town, not unlike what we grew up in. And it's him at the uh, at the end of his life, and he's um, writing a letter to his young son. And um, it's a beautiful book. That one, that's got some lines in it that I was just like, that was just that I, I had to sit with him for a little while. Wow. Um, but and then on the other side of it, like like I've been listening to that Kendrick Lamar record like a ton. Yeah. Um, I I need to spend a little more time with that Chance record too. Um, I've been I've been loving both of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think like the last tour that I did uh, was with my two friends from Los Angeles who are both Black Americans, and um, I felt like just sort of being around them for a month, um, and sort of getting a view into their world. It gave me a whole new appreciation for that type of music in particular and what they are talking about and sort of the real hardships of being a person of color in America. Uh, I've been thinking about that a lot. It's a long answer, I guess. Those are those are two of the things no, that those I've been are good. consuming. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. No, that's exactly my my jump into the world of of hip hop is learning and it's it's kind of the same thing. It's like I'm trying to challenge myself. You know, growing up I was the guy who was like, I like all music except for country and except for <laughs> hip hop. Yeah, 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 yeah. I probably said except for rap. Right. Um, and now I live in Nashville, and I'm yeah. starting to learn the nuance and the beauty of country. Totally, um, yeah. Some country. There's, I mean, there's some that is awful. Oh yeah. Uh, bad art. Um, <laughs> but and that's, but that, and that's the same with hip hop. But like, I'm oh. learning that there's so much beauty and nuance in this thing that yeah. I formerly rejected. Totally. Um, on the countryside, the new Sturgill Simpson record is unbelievable. Really? Yeah, that's one. To, I'll I, check that out. Sturgill Simpson is boom, awesome. That's another one. I threw another one in there. I love that. Snuck it in. (laughs) That's good. Um, Okay, I want to ask one last question. I normally ask, like, based on the ways that you've chosen to step out and live your life in the unique way that you have, like, what's one practical way that you would encourage somebody to do something right now, right here? But I maybe want to ask you, like, if there's anybody who's going through something, you know, an experience of grief Mm. or an experience of doubt or you know, the, their mind boxes are tipped. Yeah. Um, what is an encouragement for them? What's something that, that they can uh, take action on, live into? Yeah, I really like that question, man. I, I, I mean, I think I would, if there is anything in me that it is that is wise, it's usually a direct plagiarism from my mom. So <laughs> <laughs> um, I would just say that, like, the, I mean, this, is, this was the case for me, but the um, – being able to look back on my mom's life and death, that she died beautifully. 
Um, I don't know if I would have thought about it that way if I hadn't leaned into it and processed through things being hard really actively to a place where it feels like you're burning yourself. Um, I think that that's, I think that's probably the first, I think that if you can find a way to, to make yourself feel hard when things are lost, that ultimately you end up finding it's like it, you end up burning out the stuff that's hard and you find a brand new beauty in the end. So that's what I think. That's good. Mm-hmm. Lean into it. Lean into it, man. Lean into it. Um, well, Tyson, this has been so good. This is a killer talk, dude. Man, this is a this is a good freaking talk. I it, it felt like a little like a little counseling session, a little bit of <laughs> little little in depth, but that like it's I love you're processing through all of this and I love the intentionality you've had over the last few years. And, um, and it's been really interesting that we've been on so much of this same journey totally. in, in fully different ways, yeah. incredibly different ways. But I just, I resonated so much with this dude, two kids from nowhere, Washington, man. <laughs> oh man. We'll, awesome. We'll have to do a reunion. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me on tonight. Dude, man. thanks so much. If people want to find your music, if they want to follow you on the internet, like where can they do that? So my name is Tyson Motzenbacher, which is a really long name. It's just like it sounds. M-O-T-S-E-N-B-O-C-K-E-R. That's my website and my Instagram and my Twitter. So Amazing. There you go. Cool. Well, dude, I'm so glad we got to have you yeah, on man. the show. Should we high five? Yeah, let's high five. Said I'd walk to San Francisco. After everything was done I thought the noise and moving busy Kept my mind from really knowing what was gone When I finally saw it closing All those miles above the bay well, I was only standing closer to the man I tried to lose along the way But if I'm being honest if I'm being honest Oh
one goodbye As if the early passing was a door That she could look through with a smile So if I'm being honest As if I'm being honest And I would tell her that it's a pair of jeans It's a rude awakening It's a fine life lived in the privilege Thanks again to Tyson for being on the show. That song you just heard, Honest, is on his album Letters to Lost Loves and is available anywhere that you can find music. If you're new to Sounds Good, we would love for you to stick around, dive into our archives, listen to a few of our older episodes. There's so much in there. And hit the subscribe button. and That way you'll make sure that you hear our new episodes when they come out first. This podcast is created by me, Brandon Harvey, as a part of Good, 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 a community that believes in the power of celebrating good news and becoming good news. Chad Michael Snavely and the team at CM Studio edit and mix our show. You can get lots more hopeful stories on social media by following us everywhere at Good, 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 CO. We also create a beautiful quarterly newspaper that celebrates the people, ideas, and movements that are changing the world for the better and a weekly good news letter that's an email newsletter where we send out five pieces of good news that happened in the world over the last week. You can check both of those out and see what else we do at Good 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 by visiting goodgoodgood.co. And on that note, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Go out and do some good this week, and we'll be back next week with another inspiring story from an incredible person. Sound good? Good.